The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, The Bain Guide to Gift Giving, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, DJ Butler sat down to discuss Worlds Long Lost, an anthology of all new stories featuring ancient aliens, future archaeologists, and much, much more. Joining Dave, who we should say is also a contributor to the book, were editors Christopher Rocchio, who himself contributed this story, and Sean C.W. Korsgaard, as well as contributors Sean Patrick Hazlett, Brian Trent, Jonathan Edelstein, Michael A. Rothman, David J. West, Patrick Childs, and Griffin Barber. But first, the news. Looking for the perfect gift this holiday season? Well, look no further. Give the Bane Books lovers in your life what they really want, more Bane Books, with Bane Books gift cards. You decide the amount, but remember, eARCs are $15 a piece, monthly bundles, $18. Pretty sure they already have everything? Head on over to the Bane Cafe Press Store and check out our wide variety of Bane merchandise with travel mugs, t-shirts, tote bags, hats, and more, there is something for every Bane fan. And don't forget about the Bane Challenge coins. All of this information can be found at Bane.com and act now while supplies last. Uh, welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour. This is uh, Dave uh, DJ Butler, and I'm here with... Uh, uh, the two editors and many of the writers who contributed to our exciting World's Long Lost anthology out uh, December 6th in trade paper. Uh, I think it's December 6th. Is that right, uh, Sean? Yes, sir. Fantastic. Um, so uh, we can't we can never accommodate everyone. We have a, a, a large group, but, you know, we got all the all the talented ones, so I feel good about it. Um, <laughs> Oh, Nobody uh, tell Orson Scott Card. If that guy answered his emails, he'd be on here too. What can I tell you? Uh, <laughs> so uh, this is the kidding. conscientious group. Just kidding, Scott. Don't kill me. Um, so uh, so Sean, who was appearing here as a book, uh, and Christopher uh, edited the anthology. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the the anthology overall. What's the background? Where where did this uh, where did this anthology come from? Yeah, so this is a collection of xenoarchaeology stories. You know, sort of uh, everything from Lovecraft to Stargate, kind of. Uh, and uh, this book started as spare cover art. Uh, I used to be junior editor at Bain Books. And uh, we were going through the files, and we found this old Bob Eggleton painting that had never been used for anything before. It was a you know classic Eggleton landscape. You can see it behind Dave's shoulder or in lieu of Sean's face. And uh, and so uh, Tony Weisskopf sat down and was like, "What can we uh, What can we use this for?" And uh, I you know pitched the Xenoarchaeology idea. She said, "It's great. Let's do it." Um, it was at the time like the 
third or fourth anthology in the shoot for me, because that was one of the things I used to do sort of all the time, was put these together. So uh, this one's actually been sort of brewing for like three years because we found the cover art quite some time ago. And uh, it uh, it took some time to uh, to get the, uh, you know, get the band together. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I started to collect some authors. And I, once Sean uh, replaced me in the office, I brought him on to sort of show him the ropes uh, how this uh, whole anthology game is uh, played. So very exciting so sean am i right to understand then this is your first anthology you've edited yes sir i as christopher put it a little more nicely than i would he offered me a to help he offered me a spot to help edit this anthology and i all but tripped over my own feet my own tongue and my own dignity for the chance but i I'm very lucky to have learned a lot from Christopher in the process, worked with some outstanding authors, and I think we can all say that we've put together an anthology we can all be very proud of. So how do you, by the way, Bob Eggleton, that's, he, he does the, Ch the Chuck's Kane Reorden covers, right? That's Bob Eggleton? Most of them, yeah. I think there have been a couple artists on that series. Yeah. So one of the things you have to look a little closely to see, uh, there's like a ship. Right, the landscape on the cover is is really massive. It's these huge like tumbled plinths or something, and there's like you can tell because there's a little tiny ship uh, with its like contrails passing uh, uh, through the middle of them. Um, so okay, well, how, so how do you pick a, a crew of writers then? I mean, Bain's Bain's got contact with uh, hundreds of writers uh thousands if you include people that aren't actually published yet with bain how, how do you go about getting uh submissions yeah well there's no uh there's no wrong way to do it uh, or rather there are lots of right ways to do it let's say uh in in my case you know i had a couple names i knew i wanted to uh, to have in first place i knew i wanted to get uh yourself dave because uh, I just always include you in an anthology when I edit it. Uh, Tony Weisskopf uh, suggested a fellow named Adam Oyubanji, who's not with us this evening, uh, because we had failed to get his book. Uh, and uh, when, uh, and so she wanted to get at least a short story from him. Uh, and he, uh, you know, graciously uh, agreed to join the group. Um, and so uh, there, were, there were a few other names, of course, I knew I wanted to have in, uh, in the first place. Mostly folks I'd worked with before on previous anthologies, because it's my, I think, my eighth and my, my final one with Bain. Uh, so I'm not on payroll anymore. And uh, then there were some names that Sean brought in. Uh, Sean uh, reads a lot more than I do these days, uh, particularly in the short fiction market. So he had some suggestions, and Sean also uh, was dead set on getting Orson Scott Card, and all but bullied him into uh, into joining us. Um, but you, uh, you know, you try to get, uh, you know, a sort of a sort of broad spectrum. You know, writers you think are going to give you different stories, uh, because with uh, a theme that's sort of as broad as this, right? You know, I um, I wanted to do just you know xenoarchaeology stories, right? There's a lot of stuff that can fit into that umbrella, whether that's you know sort of, like I said, the Lovecraftian horror thing or some adventure stuff or maybe some more uh, straight up hard science fiction. There's a lot of uh, stuff you can do with that brush. And so I just went to a group of folks I was sure would give me, you know, sort of different things. Very cool. And, and at least on my end, Christopher did a pretty good job filling the bases. I just had to bring in a couple other names and at least the approach Christopher taught me was to look for the kinds of stories we had already, the kinds of authors we had already. We had some great military science fiction, a lot of Lovecraftian stuff, 
but we needed some more Nibbit-esque, your ring world, your, your scientific stories, your optimistic stories, and my two big contributions to that were, as Christopher said, getting Orson Scott Pard, because I jokingly asked Christopher and Tony Weisskopf, who's the biggest author we've never had in a Bane anthology? And Card was the name we kind of settled on. I have no idea how I rolled the proverbial 20 to get him to agree to this, but Card did sign on, put in a great story, giving up on the piano, which is one of the tail end stories of the anthology. But the other one is Mr. Jonathan Edelstein here, who has done some great short fiction in a lot of the magazines, but hasn't. I believe this is his first time ever appearing in a print book. So I really wanted to try and find an author who hadn't had a chance to come up to the plate and take a swing. And I will say Jonathan turned his story in in just, I believe just under or over a week. So for any other anthologists out there, Jonathan turns in his work pretty fast. Well, let's come back to you in a second for a description of Card's story, but Jonathan, and is, is it, I should have asked before, is it Steen or Stein? Steen. Steen, John Edelstein. I think Edelstein. I you earlier. My apologies. Um, uh, tell us about your story, Jonathan. By the way, way to go, uh, way to go establishing a professional brand of being prompt and responsive. That's such A-plus behavior and so rare in this industry. All right, sorry, go ahead. It, it helps when you don't have much else going for you. But um, the, this anthology actually pushed just about all of my buttons. When Sean asked me to contribute to this, it was a no-brainer to say yes. Uh, it's my fascination since childhood have been history, uh, ruined things, abandoned places, uh, search for knowledge, piecing together mysteries. I mean, these are the things that make up a story. And also the story that I have in this anthology is, is set in a universe where I've written several other stories. It's a broad screen space opera anthology uh, or setting that is with 30 odd thousand years of history thousands of worlds to choose from, um, a lot of internal mythology and legend that I've built up in some of the other stories. And my stories in this universe have tended to focus on search for knowledge and search for renewal regardless. So it really fit into the theme. The, the setting fit into the theme and I had an idea that I had jotted down a few notes for uh, earlier, never done anything with. And when Sean suggested that I contribute to this anthology, I thought about that idea. I said, this is really gonna fit. And the way I tend to write is when I have a story that is ready to write. I write it, I write it quickly. I sit down, I'll write two or 3,000 words in a day. I'll turn, you know, th this one was about 6,500. I think I wrote it in three days over the course of a week. 
And I'm an edit-as-I-go person. My first draft is my last draft. So that uh, that all went into the process as well. I mean, as I wrote everything, I was I was going over it and improving it, going back, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't. It's 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 always a dynamic process. Sometimes I'll go months and not write a word, but when I when I've got something to when I've got something that's really flowing, it flows. And I think that this anthology was an inspiration to me. And I hope that what I turned out fits the setting and fits the sense of space and the sense of wonder that a theme like this really deserves. Yeah. You did brilliantly, my friend. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it. I liked that it had the, the, uh, I, I like the idea of the sort of listeners and the pebbles, right? And and the idea that the, that it wasn't uh, after all a, a species, but something else. I like the yes. end. It had a very kind of uh, less is not here, but it had a very kind of less hard SF sort of ending in a way, you know. Uh, so so it was uh, it was a lot of fun to read. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Sean, tell us about Scott Card's story. Giving up on the piano does not sound like space aliens to me. So half the reason other than just trying to land the unlandable was that when thinking of alien archaeology stories, Card was my first encounter with those stories. Some people it's Lovecraft, some people it's Larry Niven. For me, it was Ender weeping about having just committed xenocide in the formic ruins of Ender's game. And I was actually surprised at the kind of story that Card turned in, giving up the piano. It's uh, it's set on Earth. It's focused on two teenagers who stumble upon a race of aliens who live between the lines of time and space. It's a very sort of, I was expecting something more akin to Ender's Game, but instead we got something closer to Stranger Things or Steven Spielberg. So it's a little more like E.T. Yeah, it's one of the stranger stories in this anthology, which given the strange nature of many of the stories of this anthology. I don't know. Jessica Kane's story was pretty weird. (laughs) He has some competition. We've got some strange tales in this anthology, but I was expecting something conventional and true to form. Card surprised me. I think it'll surprise a lot of our readers with this story. Yeah. So Sean, your your story is not very Stranger Things or ET, but it but it is uh, but it is set on Earth, right? Uh, tell us. Uh, sorry, Sean Hazlett. Uh, I should I should clarify. Um, changing Sean's on us here, Dave. I'm changing Sean's. Yeah, sorry. That was that was a terrible transition. I'm gonna go fix that in the edit. Um, uh, it's a it involves eating green worms. Uh, t- tell us about yours. It, tonally very di- different than either of these other two. Maybe maybe tonally unique. Uh, what was your story about? Yeah. So. My story is inspired by a number of different things. It's kind of like Stephen King's Tommy Knocker 
Tommyknockers meets Stephen King's The Jaunt meets Stranger Things and then meets the alleged government practice of seeding alien or uh, non-human technology to corporations to avoid FOIA requests. But essentially what the story centers around is a a distressed security guard who is trapped in a bit of a, a time loop and he's trying to seek redress from somebody who is an old friend, but a higher level executive who has no knowledge of what's going on at this Antioch facility. And during the course of the story, he learns more and more disturbing things, uh, you know, ending in something about chasing the green worm. Yeah. So very X-Files, very kind yeah, of big corporate it, government conspiracy paranoia. Yeah, it's very, I would say, strange. It plays with notions of time. It plays with the stru- corporate structures that are focused more on uh, you know, trying to extract value from something they don't quite understand. Um, and it's just, it's just very, very, I think, different. I yeah. wouldn't call it corporate horror, but it's kind but of corporate kind of. horror adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. And it ends with the with the darkest non-disclosure agreement scene ever written. <laughs> yes, but I will I will not. Yeah, I, I, let's let's save that for the for the readers to to get through. Yeah, I I have uh, with Baines sometimes it's it's difficult for me to end stories well. By well, I don't mean good. I, I mean like things don't always work out for the protagonist (laughs) or they do. I mean, you know, endless employment can't be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Can be. Uh, (laughs) So um, yeah. Why? I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that uh, very much. Um, Griff, I, you know, there's, there's a, there's a very poignant thing about, going on in your story quite independently of the actual story itself right yeah Um, uh, we lost rick boatwright he was a big uh part of uh 1632 certainly but also for uh baines bar uh did a lot of work on it and stuff he uh also pretty much got me my start uh he uh uh, i'm a a 20-year law enforcement in northern california uh, I don't have much of a science background, and I was writing a story for uh, the Grantville Gazette, uh, and I, I needed a, a chemistry answer to a question I had, uh, crickets, and he answered that question, and, and uh, immediately the story was bought. It was my first attempt to get published uh, for fiction, and it's basically because he, you know, he answered the call. Uh, so, yeah, he was a big, uh, big part of my career and a big part of a lot of other authors' careers as well, and he uh, really kick-ass author in his own right uh he he passed away from pancreatic cancer two years ago so uh while he was uh in the hospital uh getting treatment uh, i asked him if i could uh you know red shirt him in any story that i had if i could tuckerize him and, and or, or do anything and he's like yeah absolutely man go ahead uh and i finished the story on the day that he passed away uh but i didn't get to get him until 
So I was kind of bummed about that. But yeah, it's a, a Spacer uh, first class Rick Boatwright member of uh, a commando group of uh, uh, interstellar commandos. Hmm. Uh, and he, uh, on a mission, he runs across something uh, that could be horror. It, it could be uh, just an archaeological fragment. Uh, his uh, the the team that he's with, the commando team that he's with, their AI doesn't recognize it uh, as existing at all. Um, and uh, he somehow escapes the trap that's been set by these uh, uh, the opposition uh, through the uh, auspices of this uh, artifact uh, that has been left on this asteroid uh, uh, adjacent to a uh, an antimatter facility. So yeah. Uh, there were a couple of tie-ins there that I had to, that I wanted to complete, uh, and another friend of mine, because it's presented as an interview process, uh, post-action interview, uh, the by the other side where he was captured, uh, or maybe not the other side. I'm not really sure. The uh, interview or or is published by another friend of mine who also passed away from cancer in the last three years. So I I was able to kind of uh, hit a bunch of high points that I wanted to hit. And uh, Rick had uh, 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 a strong faith, and he wanted to, you know, he he kind of carried that forward in what in the things he did. Uh, so I kind of wanted to uh, touch up on that uh, as well, given that you know uh, one of the uh, immediate things that I think of us going to when confronted with uh, alien technology, et cetera, is what does this mean as far as our whole theology, whatever it may be, you know, what will it mean for spirituality, et cetera, if they do or do not recognize certain things, if their powers seem, uh, you know, omnipotent, that kind of thing. So I, I wanted to explore a lot of that. And I, I kind of came up with an answer uh, that I think uh, uh, Rick might have enjoyed. Yeah. Now, now uh, there's a chief Urbanic in here who I assume that's, I, th I assume there's more red shirting going on. Yeah, actually she, yeah. Uh, at Liberty Con, uh, she paid for a tucker uh, red shirting by, by me. Uh, I was floored by it because I, you know, I'm, I'm not well known by anybody, but uh, she, she purchased that. And um, so, yeah, I put her in that too. So yeah, there's actually three, you know, she's a friend of mine now, yeah. but uh, there are actually three people that are kind of Bane adjacent or Bane uh, central people that have uh, made it into this as well. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool to be able to do. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, now you've, you've written, you've published other science fiction. Is this at all, like, is this story at all related to your Second Chance Angel stories, for example? Uh, not Second Chance Angel, but it is related to a story that I had published in um, uh, Fantastic Hope, uh, and oh, yeah. uh, it's the same Laura universe. Ray Hamilton, Larry Correa. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the bridge, uh, uh, the Bridger species uh, fits heavily into my first novel that I ever wrote, and I haven't. Uh, I submitted it once to Bain, it got turned down, and I, I've been tinkering with it or thinking about it it may just remain trunked because it's not quite there. But um, that basic premise of uh, an alien species that. Uh, was that left behind these remnants uh, that are, uh, frankly, they're sixth dimensional. It came out of a conversation I had with a mathematician uh, who is also married to a, uh, another mathematician, both teaching in the collegiate setting, about sixth dimensional uh, items and how they might appear or not appear to us. Uh, and that the whole blinking of, I looked at it once and it was looking this way, that way, and it was a smell, a taste, and all these other sensorium that came from that math, those discussions with those mathematicians. So, yeah, very cool. 
it's me, no science guy. So I have to talk to other people and rob them mercilessly. Yeah, I understand. Which is one of the things Rick was great at, by the way. Like I met him at Liberty Con and he, my first time, and he basically said, just so you know, if you have any questions about engineering, you should come talk to me. He was a uh, he was a teacher, a high school chemistry teacher at one point, and so and uh, a businessman, a consultant. You know, he he was an all around just a really generous man, and uh, helped out uh, legions of sixteen thirty two authors, but uh, me in specific again multiple times. He was yeah. also a, a bit of a gunsmith and that kind of thing. So I had a team of I have a friend who owns a gun store in Southern California, the most hostile environment for a gun store owner is outside of the UK. <laughs> Uh, and so the two of them kind of tag team me on stuff that I was doing for weapons development for a 1632 story and whether it was possible. Very cool. Very cool. I want to come talk to Mike Rothman in just a minute about tie-ins in just a minute, but first, um, so we've got, uh, not everyone is here. So, uh, Christopher and Sean of the, uh, of the, uh, course guard variety, um, what uh, of this of these stories that are whose authors are not here you know other than orson scott card do you have a particular favorite or is there anyone you want to kind of call out as being surprising or compelling or whatever uh well i'm not gonna you know play favorites right because uh you know everyone mm -hmm. here will will lynch me right but um <laughs> but uh of the writers are not here the story uh i, I talked about adam Bonji a little bit earlier mm -hmm uh that was a really fun story um i uh it has a little twist ending you maybe see coming it's kind of a classic kind of sci-fi story but the the setting uh, that's what makes it good is, is yeah of course right <laughs> um you know it's always nice when you can kind of see where something's going in advance there's a sort of special sort of joy of, of you know being right that it's it's great to be able to give that to your readers so that was a fun part but um, his setting too had a very sort of like uh, like new space opera, like eighties nineties space opera kind of feel to it, uh, in, in a similar way uh, to your story, Johnson, uh, which is mm -hmm. something that I really uh, I really like. I really like space opera of that period, and so uh, so that was a that was a fun story. Uh, what about you, Sean? You already brought up Ayabanji, who obvi obviously talented author, delivered a very art almost Arthur C. Clarke style story with the wrong shape to fly. So since you brought his story up, and again, with the uh, caveat that we don't have favorites, we have stories we like for different reasons. I would have to say either Gray Reinhardt's or Erica Campbell's story, just because both of them went in very dark Lovecraftian directions, but in very, very different ways. Gray with a very small personal scope and Erica with a grand cosmic horror scope, both of whom really tapped into that cosmic horror vein in a way that even outside the anthology, you just don't see a lot within cosmic horror. So it was... I know there was some fear going into this that we'd end up with 15 different Lovecraftian horror stories, but of the ones we have, they each tackle a different avenue and vein of that style of horror and cosmic science fiction, which is really good to see in an anthology. Yeah. One, one of the stories, 
again, just to sort of touch on stories that aren't represented here because the author couldn't make it at this time slot or whatever. But I already mentioned Jessica Kane's story, which is a pretty, pretty straight up, very Lovecraft-like Lovecraftian story, except that it's being told through transcripts of texts and telephone calls of this sort of uh, couple that had, I think they were, they were maybe more like a one night stand. And then he left her for the woman he's really with. And so she's kind of like the stalker ex-girlfriend, but she's having this full blown weird Lovecraftian things on her farm in like isolated Vermont or whatever it is. It's a very Lovecraft story, except that a hundred percent it's, it's, <laughs> it's all, all technology, maybe even social context. Lovecraft would not have, would not have recognized. So um, my favorite Lovecraft story, I call it out of space. Actually, I'd say that's exactly what Lovecraft would have recognized. He would have done the same thing with letters. Yeah. 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 It's, it's an update. Social media is the updated version of that. <clears throat> yeah. So that's, that's, that was a lot of fun. Mike has changed his background. So Mike, uh, you've delivered a story, which is, which is, um, it's, it's more than just a tie in. It's a little bit of an overlap with a novel that I have to confess an interest that we have coming out in March. So tell us, tell us about the story and, uh, and maybe also a little bit about the novel. Sure. Um, okay. So when I first heard about, you know, the world's long lost anthology, Dave and I were deep into, I don't know if we'd finished it or we were pretty close to finishing uh, time trials, which, you know, releases early next year. Um, and it's like, well, uh, I mean, like any good story, you know, you know, time trials starts with a what if, and, you know, I, I'm my own personal style. I, I, I oftentimes write prologues, but throw them away and hardly ever publish them, but it serves as good backdrop to inform some scenes. And, and, and we've got certain themes in the book we were writing that were kind of hints. They're not main characters, but they're motivating to the larger arc of what is going to be a multi-book series. And it's like, okay, well, this short story, I thought, you know, this anthology came along and I was like, well, I guess that fits exactly to the theme of what we were doing because we, we have this you know, from, from all the reader knows in the book is this cosmic, you know, greater than life, God, you know, hypothetically godlike creature that seems to be pulling the puppet strings for a lot of things that are happening in the book. And I'm like, well, a lot of the prologue and a lot of the early thought that we had was, well, what's motivating the entire arc? So, you know, as authors, we know, you know, what, what, what the bigger picture is, but we don't, say everything so the you know the short story was an excuse for us to give some of that backstory you know and rise of the administrator the the i guess the way I, you know the easiest way for people to relate to it in in my view would be and, and dave might look at it differently is that uh people are familiar with well those people who are familiar with star trek and q you know that the the godlike creatures from you know from uh the future um imagine if you were going to get a backstory of what you know where did q come from where did they where did that q continuum start from 
in, in my mind, a lot of that kind of is answered in the rise of the administrator. Imagine, you know, the, the character Q being the puppet master of some kind. Um, and where did they start from? And so rise of the administrator really does cover a lot of intermixing between our history, you know, you know, how, how, how does, I'm going to call it the Q because people can probably relate to it, but how, do, how, how does the administrator interact with our own ancient history? These are obviously aliens from the human perspective, um, but then where, where, where did these things come from and what motivates them and why are they doing these things to us that, you know, is it real? Is it not real? What, uh, 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 you know, and, and Dave has got this propensity for writing stuff that, you know, has deep roots into history. So it, it fits perfectly into a lot of the what if scenarios that many of our books and stories, you know, focus on. So, I mean, that's kind of where this came from. Yeah. And the sort of the sort of the connection there is that time trials is very much set off by a piece of alien architecture. Uh, an alien machine and a sort of Egyptian drag. Uh, and so we, you know, sort of telling the backstory of that device. I'm not saying it was aliens. Yeah. But it was aliens. Yeah. <laughs> it was alien. Actually, I don't know why that's not our tagline. I'm not saying it was aliens. That should have been the tagline of this <laughs> anthology. <clears throat> no, just kidding. I won't, I won't, I won't come uh, mess around in the kitchen. Uh, but, but, okay, so Christopher, speaking of like aliens appearing godlike, it's kind of our running theme over the last couple of here. Yeah. Uh, you, you're also, you've also got a story in the collection, which is a tie-in story, at least it's set in the universe of, uh, Hadrian Marlowe's, uh, epic saga. It sure is. Uh, yeah, I've been playing this game much to uh, Sean Korsgaard's amusement where I find a Sun Eater premise for every anthology I'm assigned, even if it's fantasy. Um, just because... We will find uh, one I, that will break you yet. Ah, no, you won't. Uh, and so uh, this, this was an easy one, though. So this is uh, this ties into the Sun Eater series. It's set before any of the books, though. Uh, and it is about uh, sort of circumstances following a dig on a captured uh, alien world ship, uh, the Cielsen, who are the uh, the alien sort of villains for the series. Uh, they don't they don't stay on planets. They sort of hollow out moons and live in them and turn them into ships and uh, you know travel around the galaxy, causing problems for people. Uh, and so this is set shortly after the first battle between humanity and these aliens. Uh, where you know you've got a bunch of uh, imperial researchers who have been digging up uh, digging up the alien planet and they found something very strange and something very strange has happened to one of the uh, the engineers who was uh, doing the excavating. Um, it turns out there there may be more than one alien species involved in the whole thing and uh, one of them uh, this is a very strange thing to have happened perhaps twice in one anthology has sort of hyperdimensional. Um, uh, abilities and has, uh, despite being seemingly uh, dead, uh, affected the the character in a way that sort of uh, has altered his relationship with three dimensional space. Let's say, and it's uh, he's not having a good time. So, yeah. I really enjoyed the story. It was cool. 
No, thanks, man. This was a really hard one for me. I think I wrote it three times and threw away the first two versions because it wasn't uh, it wasn't it wasn't converging, which is it was just unusual for me. This was a story was a pain in the neck to write uh, and to get right. And uh, I have uh, really uh, made my life more difficult by trying to do this in the novels now, too. So um, uh, it was sort of a dry run for some stuff in the book I'm working on now. Uh, Ooh. So are we going to see these wrong knuckled aliens in book six then? Uh, we may. We may. No promises. Uh, no promises. <clears throat> uh, but uh, some, some, something's going, uh, going on for sure. Yeah. Do you have a release date for book six, six yet? Uh, for book six, no. Uh, book five's out just a week after uh, after this book is out. So it'll be out on the uh, 13th of December. That's Ashes of Man. Uh, book six I am uh, I'm working on, but uh, you know, some, you know some, uh, more on that in the near future, I think. Yeah, very, very exciting. Um, hey, I think the one, checking my list, I think the one writer who's gotten mentioned, but his story hasn't gotten mentioned yet is Les Johnson. Uh, those of you who don't know Les, he's uh, he's written uh, with Travis Taylor. He's writing with uh, Larry Correa, um, and uh, uh, he's uh, he's an actual NASA rocket scientist. Uh, we like to keep a few of these guys around to look legitimate, uh, but they're, NASA's actually building a solar sail craft that is Les's project, and it was a very Les Johnson kind of story, where the basic idea is that the artifacts that we find left by alien races need not be uh, buildings, right, or devices, they could be the planets themselves. Because what happens is an exploratory team basically uh, finds a planet with uh, two, with two, well, it's three planets all in the same orbit, because two of them are in the Lagrange points. Uh, and it's stable, it appears to be long term stable implying that some there's some technological super advanced technology holding these all in the same orbit which then of course terrifies uh the discoverers because anyone who could do this can wipe us out you know and it sort of ends on this 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 big discovery and then it's this kind of fun note of suspense so um all right all right brian i feel like i've you've been on pins and needles you've been anxious to talk uh Speaking of Lovecraftian, right? Uh, tell us, uh, tell us about the Thovogri and the Gloomnots and the story that you wrote. Well, Howlers in the Void. I wrote it. You know, I don't write in that universe. My universe of Red Space Rising is, um, uh, you know, more realistic. But I really wanted to go pulp with this and uh, fill the universe, fill the galaxy with all these different races. But I always liked, it's not just, I mean, Lovecraft is an obvious touchstone, but I mean, also Arthur Mackin's The Ray God Pan, The King in Yellow. A lot of, I always liked the idea of growing up of looking at something that the human mind wasn't able to process. And that's where the gloom knots came from. So just to look at them, it's rewriting their brains. And these things have been seeded throughout the galaxy. And whoever discovers them ends up being subconsciously rewritten and then bringing and then coming back to the planet of origin uh, well, along with their crew and the technology and everything else like you're casting lures out around the galaxy so i had a blast writing it because it was it was very unusual by uh, uh by the kind of fiction that i usually write and the thavogri of course are these space pirates but i didn't want to go human that's the thing i didn't want to go 
the Star Trek rubber rubber suit alien look. I mean, the the Thavogri are radiates. They're they're starfish like things, and then I got to have hints of other crustacean like things and mollusk like things. But ultimately, the horror you don't you don't see completely, but it's it's beyond all of them. You know, worse all these different species that have been competing through the through the book, all the implied backstory is um, we're the new kids on the block. There's something older and more horrifying. And we are just the, we are the, uh, the insect, the ants that wandered into the trap uh, mm. without realizing it. And, and God knows how long they've been doing this for, right? Uh, so uh, I think I delivered it to you on Halloween and that was complete by accident. I just was trying to finish it. It would, I draw, drew from, October themes and October inspirations. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, something in the air. <laughs> there's, something, it was, there's something in the air, exactly. Yeah. There's this great moment where you think that maybe, uh, maybe what's going on is that a generation ship has crashed here and they survive first by cooking and eating the own, their own frozen embryos and then by luring people in like some kind of demented 17th century pirates on a on a rock kind of story on a reef yeah and that's like horrifying and disgusting but no actually it's worse it's worse it's worse there right there was a um, <laughs> a main character did talk about the ways they might be able to survive by making use of yeah the larva from this ship and you know the the living blankets on this ship and all these different things but yeah it's it's even more horrifying uh it's sort of a, the whole story is built like um almost um like a uh, like a pyramid of horror right i mean just uh, one hurdle after another after another re reaching the uh, demented capstone yeah and uh, it was yeah, like, it was a great place to plan the end is horrifying it's horrifying as he as he smiles with a gleeful smirk <laughs> well, like, yeah, taken by itself, the last two sentences are very upbeat. <laughs> well, and, and being, you know, having been through some horror shows uh, myself, you can only deal with it by smiling uh, and making a joke. Yeah. yeah, gallows humor, right? You have to go along with that. And and like like you said, it's it, it, depending on one's perspective, it's a gloriously optimistic ending. Uh. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Lord. So, uh, all right. So, speaking of pulp, David West, you've written stories about Crunia before, right? No, I meant to. That's why well, you meant to. You've been sitting on this Crunia idea for like eight years or something. Now. I, I had the idea of what if we sent a guy to Crunia. Yeah. So, what is Crunia? First of all, he gets warped back. What's that? What is Crunia? First of all. Uh, I, I first heard about it as our second moon, even though it's not really Probably a moon. Not. Yeah. It's this big asteroid that's uh, got a weird elliptical orbit around us. And I, I started playing with the idea, well, what if we found it a little bit earlier than we thought? And we send a guy out to check it out. And, but the it came to me was uh, something I'd heard about called the Black Knight Satellite. And I, you always hear about that in like... Uh, ancient stuff and so my story was kind of like how did that get there what is that and then the story kind of went somewhere else but it's it's tied in <laughs> and so it's it's pulpy and i i kind of can't believe that i didn't do something lovecraftian because 
I do that half the time with my shorts. So I was kind of surprised that's not where I felt like going with this. Yeah. Uh, me too. <laughs> so, so uh, we, 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 we've got a, a kind of two-fisted pulpy action here, Air Force guy, right? Cormac. Uh, but he's, he's lost his family in a car accident and he's dying of, is that camera, is it lung cancer or something? He's got cancer, yeah. He's got cancer, right? So he volunteers for basically the suicide mission. But it turns out that he doesn't land on Krunia in any way that our, uh, what we would recognize in like scientific or engineering literature. He ends up, or at least it looks like he ends up in ancient Sumer, uh, you know, trying to free, joining the rebellion against the Sumerian gods holding humanity down. Yeah, the Anunnaki and. <sighs> Yeah, some of that I just kind of went where the muse led me, and I was didn't until the story was done. And Chris and Sean mentioned it. They're like, "Oh, it's got kind of a the man who would be king vibe," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I guess it does." Because <laughs> that was with the Robert Howard quote. Um, that's when that's the part when you say, "Yeah, I meant to do that." <laughs> right. I, I didn't mean to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> I haven't I, gotten to your story yet, but I'm looking forward to that. That and all the all the more now because I love Sumer and Babylonia and Bronze Age. Yeah, yeah, and it, I wouldn't say it's super historically accurate. I was more just uh, doing a pulp, playing around space opera with Anunnaki and the Black Knight satellite, and just having fun with it. Well, and again, that feeds fun. back into the Robert stuff. E. Howard thing, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. All right, Pat, I've been saving you for last so you can make us look respectable, respectable, no matter what we'd said before now. <clears throat> well, and the Sumer thing is a nice, uh, nice. Oh, that's segment. true. That's a, that's a, we're, we're sort of elevated. We're kind of a little intellectual uh, kind of ending. But actually, it also, there's a nice connection there with Pat's, uh, Pat's got, it's a, it's a hard science fiction story with cuneiform in space. So uh, t tell us how you got there. Uh, I'm I'm very curious. Tell well, okay. Uh, and I'm, I've been debating this whole time as of how much to tell without giving too much away. And I, I'm still learning how to do that. Um, well, I was I was approached by Christopher to contribute to this uh, about the same time I was working on uh, Escape Orbit, which is coming out from Bain in April. And I thought this was a perfect opportunity to do a tie-in um, because Escape Orbit, it's a sequel to my first Bain novel, Frozen Orbit. And um, both get uh, into, or uh, there are about a lot of things, obviously, but uh, one of the things they touch on is origins of life. How did we get here? Um, with escape orbit, it uh, gets into more of, you know, where did we as a civilization come from? And I thought uh, a story in this anthology would be a great opportunity to, to uh, um, work those muscles a little bit and, uh, and, and do a tie-in. And so, yeah, it involves an archaeological expedition on another planet in another star system. And they're exploring ruins that are obviously extremely old and they've been abandoned for some time. They don't have any clue about uh, this civilization that, that they're trying to uncover. 
and they find they find something that's equivalent to an alien Rosetta Stone. Um, and when they get to trying to decipher it, they find a few things that are kind of strikingly, startlingly, startlingly familiar. And um, again, I don't want to give away too much, but they learn a lot of surprising things about where we came from as a civilization. And that uh, maybe the cradle of humanity isn't quite where we thought it was. No. And there, <clears throat> these explorations are happening out in, uh, around the star Sirius, right? Or Sirius Alpha, I guess it is. Uh, yes. Which, uh, you know, the explosion happens because we discover a wormhole that wormhole allows us to transit the solar system. Correct. And that's part of the connection to escape orbit and frozen orbit is those, uh, is, is that, that wormhole idea. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That, uh, yeah. In, in escape orbit, what, ha what happens is, and, and this probably isn't given too much away because it happens pretty early in the book, but, um, it's kind of a rogue expedition to find, uh, what we, you know, now call planet nine, you know, the, the idea that there's some gravity well out there that's been drawn some Kuiper belt objects towards it. And, well, what if uh, it's, you know, there's obviously some sort of gravitational field out there, but it's not a planet. <laughs> and so that's what they find. And uh, I have to give Les Johnson a shout out because he was able to connect me with a physicist at Baylor who helped me understand it, uh, and at least enough to write about it. And my, my goal is always to be able to write about these things and not get laughed out of the room by the people who actually know what they're talking about. So, uh, so yeah, it's it, the kind of sci-fi I write. It's it, it's near future hard sci-fi. Um, I've never really been into into writing much about uh, space aliens and that kind of thing. But you know, again, this gave me an opportunity to spread my wings a little bit and, and broaden my horizons some. But you know, one of one of the questions that I always have and that I try to address in my books is, you know, a lot of people question, well, what if we finally discover life somewhere else on another planet or, um, you know, what would that mean for us? You know, what kind of mass cultural freak out would that, would that entail? And I've always maintained that, well, it depends on what kind of life we're talking about, because I fully expect us to find life heck within our own solar system right you know um whether you're talking Bacteria. europa or enceladus um, I, there, there's no reason to think that we won't any more than we shouldn't be surprised if we find a new species of you know shellfish in antarctica or something but intelligent life that's a whole different ball game and that would that would tear up a lot of people's uh worldviews and so that's one of the that's one of the themes I do like to play around with in my books. Yeah. So I I uh, we could keep on like uh, connecting. This is like playing a game of Filk, uh, connecting back to each other's books, because I happen to know that there is some Acadian in uh, in the Sun Eater saga, the Cielson speak. Uh, oh, do they? I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, I think a total of like two sentences, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no clue what you're referring to. Okay, never mind. That's not yeah. canon at all. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. 
So, uh, fantastic. Well, listen, um, do anyone have any other comments they want to make or, or uh, things they want to discuss or, or anything they want to throw out there for the team here? I just want to say it's a wonderful anthology. I haven't finished it yet, but it was wonderful to be part of it. Love the concept. Love the yeah. artwork. Um, it's, uh, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a great volume, and I really hope and trust the readers are going to love it. Yeah. yeah, well, thanks for being a part of it, and and thank you all. You know, couldn't have done it without you know any one of you, right? So thanks for thanks for being a part. Yeah, it was a neat it's actually. I was going to say the same thing that half the fun of being part of any kind of collection is reading the other stories, seeing what a whole pile of other talented people did with the same theme, and and this anthology is a lot of fun, both to write for and to read. And if yeah. any of our listeners, oh, sorry, you guys first. I'm gonna go ahead, John. And if any of our listeners or viewers are still on the fence, despite this wonderful list of talent, there will be a free story on Bane.com written by me promoting the anthology. the anthology. Oh, I was just gonna ask why you didn't have a short story. Okay, there's the answer. <clears throat> Your story goes on the website. Cool. Okay, also, I like the way you you split it between clean shaven people and people with beards. <laughs> and you got and you got Dave in the, in the middle there with the I can't decide I'll I'll do the handlebar and yeah. you know, work my way around that. Yeah, although I've been pretty long term committed to this look, but yes, yeah. it's good to, it's good to have diversity right. the beard <laughs> and the no beard. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! Hey, thank you everybody uh, for. For listening, and thank you everyone for joining us uh, tonight on the podcast. Again, that is World's Long Lost out in trade paperback on December six, and uh, also in all ebook formats. And if you buy them at Bain.com, they are DRM free as always, of course. Thanks everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Until next. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. Stillman shook his head sadly. I really thought things would be different for him after the fire. Fraser shrugged. I'd hoped so, too. But I'm afraid I hadn't really counted on it. Even while everybody was cheering for him, you could see that nervousness still in their eyes. That fear of him was never gone, just covered up. And now that the emotional high has worn off, that's all that's left. Yeah. Lifting his gaze from the desk, Stillman stared for a moment out the window. So they treat him like an incurable psychopath, or a wild animal. You can't really blame them. They're scared of what his strength and lasers could do if he went berserk. He doesn't go berserk, damn it, Stillman flared, slamming his fist down on the desk. I know that, the counselor shot back. 
Fine, so you want to tell everyone the truth? Even assuming Vanis Darl didn't jump down our throats for doing it, would you really want to tell people Johnny has no control over his combat reflexes? You think that would help? Stillman's flash of anger evaporated. No, he said quietly. It would just make things worse. He stood up and walked over to the window. Sorry I blew up, Sut. I know it's not your fault. It's just... He sighed. We've lost it, Sut. That's all there is to it. We're never going to get Johnny reintegrated into this town now. If becoming a bona fide hero didn't do it, then I have no idea what else to try. It's not your fault either, Teague. You can't take it personally. Fraser's voice was quiet. The army had no business doing what it did to Johnny, and then dropping him on us without any preparation. But they're not going to be able to ignore the problem. You remember what Darrell said? The Cobras are having trouble all over the Dominion. Sooner or later, the government's going to have to do something about it. We've done our best. It's up to them now. Stillman's intercom buzzed. Walking back to his desk, the mayor tapped the key. Yes? Sir, Mr. Dosin just called from the press office. He says there's something on the dome press line that you should see. Thank you. Sitting down, Stillman turned on his plate and punched up the proper channel. The last three news items were still visible, the top one marked with a star indicating its importance. Both men hunched forward to read it. Dominion Joint Military Command HQ Asgard. A military spokesman has announced that all reserve Cobras will be recalled into active service by the end of next month. This move is designed to counter a Minthisti buildup along the Dominion's Andromeda border. As yet, no regular army or star force reserves are being recalled, but all options are being kept open. I don't believe it, Fraser shook his head. Are those stupid Minthisti going to try it again? I thought they learned their lesson the last time we stomped them. Stillman didn't reply. Vanis Darl swept into Mayor Stillman's office with the air of a man preoccupied by more important business. He nodded shortly to the two men who were waiting there for him and sat down without invitation. I trust this is as vital as your message implied, he said to Stillman. I postponed an important meeting to detour to Horizon. Let's get on with it. Stillman nodded, determined not to be intimidated, and gestured to the youth sitting quietly by his desk. May I present Jamie Morrow, brother of Cobra Three Johnny Morrow. He and I have been discussing the reserve call upset for later this month in response to the alleged Minthisti threat. Alleged? Darl's voice was soft, but there was a warning under it. Stillman hesitated, suddenly aware of the risk they were taking with this confrontation. But Jamie stepped into the gap. Yes, alleged. We know this whole thing is a trumped-up excuse to pull all the Cobras back into the army and ship them off to the border where they'll be out of the way. Darl looked keenly at Jamie as if seeing him for the first time. You're concerned about your brother, of course. That's only natural, he said at last. But your allegations are unprovable and come perilously close to sedition. The Dominion makes war only in self-defense. Even if your claim was true, what would such an action gain us? That's precisely our point, Jamie said calmly, showing a self-control and courage far beyond his nineteen years. The government is trying to solve the Cobra problem, clearly, but this isn't a solution. It's merely a postponement. And yet the Cobras were generally unhappy in their new civilian roles, Darl pointed out. Perhaps this will actually be better for them. 
Jamie shook his head, his eyes still holding Darl's. No, because you can't keep them there forever, you see. You either have to release them again someday, in which case you're right back where you started, or else you have to hope that the problem will work itself out. Darl's face was an expressionless mask. What do you mean by that? I think you know. For just a second, Jamie's control cracked and some of the internal fire leaked out. But don't you see? It won't work. You can't kill off all the cobras, no matter how many wars you put them through, because the army will be making new ones as fast as the old ones die. They're just too blasted useful for the brass to simply drop the project. Darl looked back at Stillman. If this is all you wanted, to throw out ridiculous accusations, then you've wasted my time. Good day to you. He stood up and headed toward the door. It isn't, Stillman said. We think we've come up with an alternative. Darl stopped and turned back to face them. For a moment he measured them with his eyes, then slowly came and sat down again. I'm listening. Stillman leaned forward in his chair, willing calmness into his mind. Johnny's life was riding on this. The Cobra gear was designed to give extra speed, weaponry, and reflexes to its owners. And according to Jamie, Johnny told him the original equipment included vision and auditory enhancers as well. Darl nodded once, and Stillman continued. But warfare isn't the only area where these things would be useful. Specifically, how about new planet colonization? Darl frowned, but Stillman hurried on before he could speak. I've done some reading on this in the last few weeks, and the usual procedure seems to involve four steps. First, an initial exploration team goes in to confirm the planet is habitable. Then a more extensive scientific party is landed for more tests. After that, you usually need a pre-colony group to go in with heavy machinery for clearing land and starting settlements. Only then does the first main wave of colonists arrive. The whole process can take several years and is very expensive, mainly because you need a small military base there the whole time to protect the explorers from unknown dangers. That means feeding a few hundred men, transporting weapons and lots of support gear. I know what it involves, Darl interrupted. Get to your point. Sending in cobras instead of regular soldiers would be easier and cheaper, Stillman said. Their equipment is self-contained and virtually maintenance-free and they can both act as guards and help with the other work. True, a cobra probably costs more to equip than the soldiers and workers he'll replace, but you've already got the cobras. Darl shook his head impatiently. I listened this long because I hoped you might have come up with something new. Comité Horm considered this same idea months ago. Certainly it would save money, but only if you've got some place to use it. There are no more than a half-dozen habitable worlds left within our borders, and all have had a preliminary exploration. We're hemmed in on all sides by alien empires. To gain more worlds, we would have to go to war for them. Not necessarily, Jamie said. We could go past the aliens. What? Here's what we have in mind, Stillman said. The Trofts just lost a war to us, and they know that we're still strong enough to really tear into their empire if we decided to invade. So it shouldn't be too hard to talk them into ceding us a corridor of space through their territory for non-military transport only. All the charts show there's at least some unclaimed space on the far side of their territory. That's where we set up the colony. Darl was gazing into space, a thoughtful look on his face. What if there aren't any habitable planets out there? 
Then we're out of luck, Stillman admitted. But if there are, look at what you've gained. New worlds, new resources, maybe even new alien contacts and trade. It would be a far better return on the Cobra investment than you'd get by killing them off in a useless war. Yes, of course we'd have to put the colony far enough past the border that the Trofts wouldn't be tempted to sneak out and destroy it. With that kind of long-distance transport, using Cobras instead of an armor battalion makes even more sense. He pursed his lips. And as the colony gets stronger, it should help keep the Trofts peaceful. They must surely know better than to start a two-front war. The army might be interested in that aspect. Jamie leaned forward. Then you agree with us? You'll suggest this to Comité Horm? Slowly, Darl nodded. I will. It makes sense and is potentially profitable for the Dominion. A good combination. I'm sure the... Trouble with the Minthisti can be handled without cobras. Abruptly, he stood up. I expect both of you to keep silent about this, he cautioned. Premature publicity would be harmful. I can't make any promises, but whatever decision the committee makes will be quick. He was right. Less than two weeks later, the announcement was made. The big military shuttle was surrounded by a surprisingly large crowd, considering that only twenty-odd people would be accompanying Johnny from Horizon to the new colonist training center on Asgard. At least ten times that many people were at the port, what with family, friends, and general well-wishers seeing the emigrants off. Even so, the five Moros and Stillman had little trouble working their way through the mass. For some it seemed to be fear that moved them out of the way of the red-and-black diamond-patterned cobra dress uniform, but for others, the important ones, it was genuine respect. Pioneers, Johnny reflected, probably had a different attitude toward powerful men than the general populace. Not surprising. It was on just those men that their lives would soon be depending. Well, Johnny, good luck, Stillman said as they stopped near the inner edge of the crowd. I hope things work well for you. Thanks, Mr. Stillman, Johnny replied, gripping the mayor's outstretched hand firmly. And thanks for... well for your support. You'll tape us before you leave Asgard, won't you? Irena asked, her eyes moist. Sure, Mommer. Johnny hugged her. Maybe in a couple of years you'll all be able to come out and visit me. Yeah! Gwen agreed enthusiastically. Perhaps, Pierce said. Take care, son. Watch yourself, Johnny, Jamie seconded. And with another round of hugs it was time to go. Picking up his satchel, Johnny stepped aboard the shuttle pausing once on the steps to wave before entering. The shuttle was empty, but even as he chose a seat, the other colonists began coming in. Almost, Johnny thought, as if his boarding had been the signal they'd been waiting for. The thought brought a bittersweet smile to his lips. On Adirondack, too, the Cobras had always taken the lead, but they'd never really been accepted by the general populace. Would things be different on this new world the survey expeditions had found for them? Or would the pattern of Adirondack and Horizon simply be repeated wherever he went? But in a way, it almost didn't matter anymore. He was tired of being a social pariah, and at least on an untamed planet, that kind of failure was unlikely. Out there, the alternative to success was death, and death was something Johnny had long ago learned how to face. Still smiling, he leaned back in his seat and waited calmly for takeoff. 
That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkiewicz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Christopher Rocchio, Sean C.W. Korsgaard, Sean Patrick Hazlett, Brian Trent, Jonathan Edelstein, Michael A. Rothman, David J. West, Patrick Childs, and Griffin Barber. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.